Now, if you would turn with me or listen on as I read Philippians chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 through 11. The focus is verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. But in order to offer uh, the setting and the context, I'll read verses 1 through 11, many of which I will allude to in the preaching of that text. Hear now God's word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. Uh, We know that every word which proceeds from the mouth of God, is to us the words of life, uh, life-giving spiritual sustenance. And we ask you, O God, that you might strengthen us in such a way now through the preaching this evening. Amen. Well, here again is an occasional uh, sermon. Uh, A sermon which, I know I've said there's a drawer of sermons, but there really isn't. Uh, There was, but there there's no, no sermons left in it, but uh, from time to time there's a text which grips me and I'll jot a few notes down and that goes in the drawer and I think at the right time I'll develop that. Here's a text which gripped me. As you know, I read the McShane Reader uh, through the Bible uh, every year, so uh, I think this was a recent reading and maybe you read it along with me. What gripped me here was two things and I doubt any Christian could object to a sermon on these two things. One was Paul's stated goal of the knowledge of Christ. Here was a man who wanted to know Christ. But the other was the way in which he described the cultivation of this knowledge. You see, Paul doesn't just say, I want to know Christ, but he tells us uh, the way in which he hoped to find it. Now, to me, this is the most fascinating and thrilling subject that Christian can ever contemplate or consider, namely the knowledge of Christ. And what is so arresting here is the way in which Paul states this as the goal of his existence. Not not as an apostle, but I would prefer to think of it as Christian. And so he's relating to us as Christian people and assuming it's our goal as well. Here's the thing he wants more than anything else. And we could put it even more strongly than that. Not just his desire to know Christ. But what he wanted more than anything was an experimental knowledge of Christ or an experiential knowledge of Christ. He wanted to know Christ in his own experience daily as a Christian. 
Yes, he knew him. He tells us that. He came to know him at his conversion. I'll say a few things about that in a moment. But he wanted to know more. He wanted to grow and increase in the knowledge of this person, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He views here the experience of the believer, not just himself, as an ever-growing experience of this knowledge. I would ask you here then at the outset of the sermon, do you know him? As a believer, is that your testimony? And then, along with Paul, do you want to know him more? Is that the stated goal of your existence, that I may know him along with Paul? And can you say that that's the thing that I want more than anything else? It's the thing I want most. It's not the thing I wanted before, you know, but now that God has renewed me and redeemed me, now that he has given me a Christian mind, I want to know Christ. I don't mean to know about him. There is, of course, a great deal of value in that. You can learn all about Christ reading uh, about him, for instance, in the Gospels or, 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 or throughout the Bible. You can learn about him. In sermons or from other Christians. But that isn't what Paul is saying. He doesn't say, I want to know about him. He says, what I want is to know him. I want to cultivate in my life a personal knowledge of this person, Jesus Christ. And he sees that as the sum and the goal and the pinnacle of the Christian life. A present personal knowledge of the Savior. Do you know anything about this? Am I describing your experience as a believer? Do you see the whole of the Christian life as the ever-growing knowledge of the Savior? And do you see that Paul describes how he came to this knowledge at first? Really, we could look at this passage in two ways. How he came to the knowledge and how he grows in the knowledge. It came like this, Paul says. And this is the material that leads up to verse 10. It came by giving up that which was my former boast. Oh, I used to boast of a, a great many things, Paul says. And there were many things that I knew. I knew the law. I knew myself. I knew what it was to be a Hebrew, even a Hebrew of Hebrews. I knew my heritage. I knew that I hated the church, he says. But one thing I didn't know, nor did I care to know, and that was Christ himself. Oh, yes, all these things were gained to me, Paul says, until I came to see. Well, until I came to know Christ, and thus I came to see the value of knowing him. Indeed, he goes on. I am happy now to give up all that in which I once boasted, if only I might enjoy the excellence of this knowledge. Verse 8. I am happy to suffer the loss of all, if only I might gain him. Yes, and how did he gain Christ? That's the language of, of verse 8. That I may gain him. It's at the very end. And if you look at verses 8 through 10, he really states two goals. One is that I might gain Christ, and two, verse 10, is that I might know Christ. Well, how did he gain Christ? How did he come to know this person whom he had not known before? He knew about him. He hated him, but now he knew him as a person. Well, he did so like this, he says. He first saw the worthlessness of what he valued before. All his former boast. It appeared now to him to be but rubbish. He no longer boasted in self. And this appeared only as he came to see the matchless value of Christ himself. Everything that he once valued and that uh, he cherished appeared now to him to have no value at all. 
he realized that nothing could compare to Christ himself. Here was the pearl of great price for which a man might sell all if only he might gain the pearl. And that's what Paul did. Paul, uh, you see, is selling all. He's giving up all in order to gain this single thing. But how did he gain Christ? How did he come to know him? Well, you remember on uh, on that road, we read about it in the Emmaus Road, Acts chapter nine. Christ revealed himself to Paul and Paul became aware in that moment of his own folly, as well as the glory and the worth of this person, Jesus Christ. Suddenly, it was in that moment that he realized all was comparatively rubbish In comparison to Christ. And from that day on he wanted to know more. He devoted all his life to learning Christ and preaching Christ. But do you see the key element in gaining Christ. Which I've not yet mentioned. Though he mentions in verse 9. Is faith. Oh I would gain Christ Paul says I would be found in him. Uh, But how does one get to that point. Well, if you take the total picture and Paul is saying not by the law, not by anything I can do, simply by believing in him as he reveals himself to us, to Paul in person, to us in the scriptures. By placing my faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says, I find myself in him. I find that by the mere act of believing. By believing, I have gained Christ. Uh, To use the language of verse 4, not having a righteousness of my own that comes by the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, even the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to me in my justification. How did I get it? How did I get into Christ having now his righteousness and no longer my own? Paul's answer, by faith alone. That's how we come to know him. By faith, I not only got this righteousness, the righteousness of justification, but I gained Christ himself. I became aware of him, he says. I was placed into him. I began to see his matchless value and worth. I compared all else to him and I realized refuse and loss. And suddenly, for Paul, now the the Christian, there was only one way to speak of gain, and that was to know Christ. That was the only thing of value now in his life. Everything else, even that which was once precious to me, had no value at all. And do you know anything about this? What it is to prize Jesus Christ. What it is uh, to see everything else as worthless in comparison. Paul is describing here, you see, in verses 1 through 9, his conversion experience. And what is conversion? Well, it comes like this. It happens when a man comes to see the true value of Jesus Christ. You see, he doesn't just realize that he's a sinner going to hell. And because he doesn't want to go to hell, he decides, well, why not believe in Christ? Perhaps I'll go to heaven after all. No, that isn't faith. That isn't saving faith. That isn't salvation. Not in the slightest. Faith is like this. It says, whatever was gained to me is now lost by comparison to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. You see, faith doesn't begin with heaven. That's the wrong focus. That's not faith. Nor does it preoccupy itself with, with escaping hell. No, the preoccupying concern of faith is Jesus Christ himself. 
And it's only as a man comes to know him as his own savior that he's saved. That's what faith is. And that is a way of clarifying the central concern of our own salvation and our own faith. Uh, I don't remember. There was a, the, uh, the Christian's great interest. That's what it was. A great Puritan work which describes saving faith in just this way. Saving faith is prizing Jesus Christ above everything else. And I ask you, is there anything that you prize more than Jesus Christ? That's the great issue. That's the great concern. And have you come to know him as Paul is describing here? Have you counted all but loss for his sake? Do you have this kind of faith and have you started to follow him? Realizing that there's not really anything else in this life of any value compared to the knowledge of Christ. And is he the preoccupying concern and the all-absorbing focus of your life? Can you say with Paul that I've gained Christ? And that is the greatest thing to me in the world. Oh, Paul says, I gave up all, if only that I might gain Christ, verse 8. But then he goes on and he tells us, and he's really repeating here something that he said in verse 8. In verse 8, he speaks of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, that he wants to know Christ. Verse 10, he came to know him at his conversion when Christ revealed him uh, uh, to Paul. And Paul there not only saw who Jesus was, but he came to believe in him, which is To prize him. He came to know him. That is uh, looked at from another vantage point. Not just in his conversion. But in his justification. Which was part of his conversion. Verse 9. But still he says. He's not content. He wants to know more. And that's where. Verse 10 comes in. The, The knowledge. Or the desire rather. To grow in the knowledge. Oh yes I've gained Christ. I've gained the righteousness. Uh. Which comes by faith. I've been justified by faith. I'm in Christ. And yet still he can say, my desire is to know him. Verse 10. Some have said, and I find this very helpful, that while verses 8 and 9 deal with the knowledge of Christ in justification or conversion, verse 10 deals with the knowledge of Christ in sanctification. In other words, Verses 8 and 9 describe, again, the conversion experience, the knowledge of Christ at our conversions. But verse 10 deals with the ever-growing knowledge of Christ in our sanctification. Here is the ongoing endeavor of the believer. The earnest striving to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Some have called it communion with Christ. The act preeminently, as I've said, of faith. The goal of faith is to commune with Jesus Christ. Faith looks to Christ not only as he was in the Gospels, but as he now is. Faith, as it is described, for instance, in Hebrews, draws near to Christ in heaven and enters within the veil where Christ is in the presence of God. You see, faith doesn't just deal with the Christ of the Gospels. It does deal with that, and it believes Christ as he's presented in the Gospels, but faith Deals with Christ as he now now is. It draws near to him as he now is in heaven. And there faith receives, again to use the language of Hebrews, it receives from him grace to help in time of need. Faith is dealing with Christ always, personally and practically. It's receiving, it's relying, it's resting on him always. And as a result of this, the believer is being strengthened. It is in that sense that faith is seen 
as an act of communion, of intimacy, of knowledge. But it also includes, and this is really the keynote of the passage, the aspect of conformity. That is, as I say, the strongest note here. It is the strongest note elsewhere in Paul. It is the way that faith in bringing us into the presence of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, conforms us to his image. To believe in Christ, to know Christ, is to be made like him by degrees. That is precisely what sanctification is. It is the practical knowledge of Christ which is known in our conformity to him. And so we could say that the goal of knowing Christ is not only to know what he is like, the kind of savior he is, what he's capable of, and so on. But the goal of knowing Christ is to be like him. The Christian wants to be like his savior. He wants to know his savior so that he can be like him. And out of a growing communion with Christ to be increasingly conformed to his image. That is the life of sanctification. And that's what Paul is describing in chapter 3 verse 10 of Philippians. You remember I said there were two things that really struck me here. One was the the stated goal of knowing Christ. And the second was the way in which this knowledge is cultivated. Well look how Paul puts it. He says the knowledge of Christ in our sanctification includes two things primarily. The first is the power of his resurrection. And the second is the fellowship of his sufferings, which also includes uh, being conformed to his death. Well, consider the first of these, the element of power. The Christian life, seen as the ever-growing knowledge of Jesus Christ, is an experience, Paul says, of power. His power manifests. And at work in me. And that is, well, that's why I'm growing in grace. Because his power is at work in me. You remember how Paul puts it in chapter 1, verse 16 of Romans. I keep coming back to that verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God to save. That's what the gospel is. Uh, But if you think of what he's saying, the full phrase, it isn't the gospel is the power of save, but it's the gospel of Christ that is the power to save. And it is only as Christ is proclaimed and made known and made known through the preaching and then believed on that the power is manifest to save. It is the gospel of Christ and nothing less than that. Only in him, only in the knowledge of him is the power of God to save known. And the power that Paul speaks of here primarily, which is at work in believers to save and to sanctify, is the power of which God displayed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is the power of his resurrection, Jesus Christ's resurrection, that Paul specifies as the source of the believer's sanctification. You see, it's not the believer's resurrection that Paul speaks of. He he doesn't say, I want to know the power of the resurrection. He's speaking of the power of his resurrection, the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection at work in me. Well, think of the power of Jesus on display at Jesus Christ's resurrection. There was a display of power the world had never known. That the Son of God should take on human form and die for sinners only to be raised again on the third day. And if it was God's law that condemned him, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, what was it that raised him up? It was God's almighty power. It's tremendous to think of such power at work in him 
in his human flesh, condemned for sin on the cross, laid in the tomb, lifeless for those three days, but raised up on the third day. Not only that, but uh, to complete the picture, the power at work in his resurrection, not only raised him from the tomb, but raised his person and his body even into heaven itself, where he is seated at the right hand of God and ruling the church and the nations now forevermore. And to him has been invested, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, all dominion and power. Nothing less than that is the power on display in his resurrection. And it is Paul's prayer, uh, to borrow the language from Ephesians chapter 1, that the believer might know that this same power, the power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead and raised him even into heaven itself, is at work in the believer now. The power of his resurrection That is the power at work in you. It is an exceedingly great power. And oh, that you might know it, Paul says. I wrestle in prayer with God for your sakes. If only you might see and know and comprehend the power that is at work in you. You see, Paul is saying, I didn't read it. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. I've only summarized it. But Paul is saying, I want you to know about Christ. I want you to see the power that was and is at work in him. To see his resurrection and his heavenly life as a display primarily of the power of God. But I also want you to see that because by faith you are in Christ. That that same power which raised him from the dead. The power of his resurrection is at work in you. It's the power of God to save. The power that Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. It's the power that brings about in us. Uh, in our conversions, a spiritual resurrection, and in time, a bodily resurrection. It's the power, as I say, therefore, of our conversion. It is the power of a new life and a new creation. It is the power of sanctification. And what is the pattern of the new man? The pattern of the new man is Jesus Christ Himself. The goal of our sanctification is conformity to Christ. And the power which animates and brings about that goal is the power of his resurrection at work in us. That is the power which is conforming us to him more and more all the time. And thus we are meant to see our own sanctification primarily as our growing in the knowledge of Christ. A knowledge which consists of being conformed to him by the power of his resurrection. But if you look at what is said next, it becomes perfectly clear that our conformity to Christ, which God is powerfully working in us day by day, occurs only in the context of suffering. Indeed, he says in the context of the fellowship of his sufferings. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, here there is some debate, uh, but I would express uh, my belief in a particular view. And that is the view that uh, Dr. Gaffin puts forth in an essay. He says that the word and here does more than simply add another idea. In other words, it could be argued that the knowledge of Christ consists in two separate things, namely the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Or if we understand the power of his resurrection conforming us to Christ and we find the language of conformity, In the second clause, we could understand the word and, and and is certainly capable of doing this, 
as Dr. Geffen argues, of explicating. And here explicates, he says. In other words, the function of the and is to explain. The and tells us the manner in which the power of Christ's resurrection is at work in the believer. Here's how that power is at work in you. It is a power which is conforming you to his life, and in particular, which is conforming you to his death. The end here explains the sense in which the knowledge of Christ occurs in this powerful way. It occurs when we are made to partake in his sufferings, as we are made to fellowship with him in a life of suffering like his. When we, like him, are called and enabled to bear our cross. Or the, the point could be stated like this. When the Christian suffers, he suffers with Christ. You could say he suffers for Christ and you would be right. But the knowledge uh, or the language here actually is more pointed and more helpful. He suffers along with Christ. And out of this experience arises the knowledge of Christ. And so it is a powerful experience. Because the new man is made like Christ through suffering. He is conformed to Christ's cross, and therefore he becomes like him. Here is what Luther called the theology of the cross, in contrast to the theology of glory. Theologians of glory look for outward glory in this life, Luther says. Theologians of the cross look rather for suffering in this life and glory in the life to come. Only they are able to see in the cross, both Christ's cross and the believers, a display of great power, even the power of God, even the power of God that was displayed at the resurrection. A theologian of glory can never comprehend this, but a theologian of the cross can. He can discern and comprehend the power in Christ's cross to save, to sanctify, to conform us to Jesus Christ himself. And so the theologian of the cross understands that the life of the Christian is not one of continual victory, not at least in the outward sense, and certainly no more than it was for Christ, but rather the believer who has been brought into fellowship with Christ by faith is now brought into a fellowship with him in his sufferings, and his life is now patterned after his death. That is, the believer's life is patterned after the death of Jesus Christ. It is conformed to his death. The power of the resurrection, I say again, conforms us to the death of Jesus Christ and thereby it sanctifies us. It is the cross more than anything else that explains the life of sanctification. It is the cross that gives us a greater and growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is the cross as we bear it ourselves daily for him and with him. And do you realize Paul is saying, That is my goal. That's the thing I want. I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection at work in me, even as I am caused to suffer along with him. I'm in fellowship with Jesus Christ. I'm enjoying communion with him, even as I suffer with him. That's how I come to know him more and more. That's how I come to be conformed to his image, as I'm conformed to his cross. And I realize This is one of the most difficult discoveries, but it's absolutely necessary of the Christian life. And that is, I can never hope to know him in any other way. 
I can never hope to know Jesus and follow Jesus except insofar as I bear my cross and follow him. And so it isn't by outward victories. It isn't by conquering nations. That isn't how I come to know him. For that is not what Christ himself did. And he calls me to live the same kind of life as his. It's only as I'm conformed to his cross so that it becomes my own. That I am that I'm made to know Christ in a personal way and grow in the knowledge of him. But what does that mean practically to bear my cross after Christ? What does it mean to suffer with him daily so that I'm made to know him? Well, it means that like Christ, who experienced suffering in a multifaceted way, which includes if you read the shorter catechism question, by the way, uh, what did Christ's humiliation consist of? That would be a great one, a great follow up, a great way to improve the sermon. It was more than the cross. It, it was everything that he suffered in this life, everything that he gave up in heaven to endure for us in this world. It includes the miseries of this life, the disappointments and the sorrows. The frustrations and the futilities of the present age. Paul speaks of that in Romans chapter 8. He says the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory to come. And he doesn't immediately jump to martyrdom. He doesn't say, well, when you die for Christ, then you suffer with him. He says, no, the sufferings of the present world are like this, uh, that the world has been cursed. It's been subjected to futility. It's the whole of the frustration of living in this world and realizing, uh, I'll quote Dr. Gaffin again, Uh, He summed it up so well when he said, things don't work as they should. Everything's cursed. And that kind of experience is, well, it was frustrating for Jesus Christ. He, more than anyone else, was keenly aware of the futility of the present age. And that futility and and the groaning and the longing for redemption is called, in Romans chapter 8, the sufferings of the present age. And it was uh, under those sufferings that Christ subjected himself. All of this together, all that he endured in this sad, miserable, cursed world, together with his literal cross and dying, comprised for him the present or the sufferings of the present age. And what this means practically then, are the fellowship of sufferings with him, is that we can expect nothing less if we would follow him. His life, as Bonar says in the everlasting righteousness, was a continual cross from the cradle to the grave. Or excuse me, he says from the cradle to the cross. The whole of his life. He was always suffering. Did you ever realize that about Jesus Christ? He was always suffering every moment that he lived in the sad world. As he left the bosom of the father, the the glories, the bliss, the joys to endure the miseries of this world. Yes, and Paul says, even they... Cannot, uh, cannot be compared to the glory that awaits us. Romans chapter 8 verses 17 and 18. I read that earlier. Not for Jesus and not for us. Nevertheless, we are called to suffer the same things along with him. Romans chapter 8 verse seven says, uh, 17 says that we are called to the same glory that he enjoyed. Provided that we suffer with him. There's that language again. Suffer with him. Even, I would say... Not comprising suffering simply to the miseries and the frustrations of this world. But yes, even to the point of dying for him. Yes, I'm willing to do that, Paul says, if necessary. And indeed he did. He died for Christ. Not just you see suffering alone in an isolated way. That's never what suffering is for the Christian. 
But to the extent that the believer suffers in this life, what Christ himself suffered. And equally, to the extent that he suffers such things as a believer. Disappointments and sorrows and troubles he experiences in this life as a believer. To just that extent, it can be said of him, he is suffering with Christ. And he will be glorified with Christ in a very short time. And it is just here in this perplexing, frustrating experience, Paul says, that Christ is known. That the knowledge of Christ is cultivated and enjoyed. It's as though he says he's standing behind, beside us. He's su- it's not, you see, just that we're suffering with him, but that he's suffering with us. We're suffering with him, Paul says. Let that be the emphasis. Not the suffering, but him. We might even say that we're enjoying the fellowship of his sufferings. Did you ever think of looking at it like that? We're enjoying it. Why? Because out of this we come to know him. And we're drawn closer to him. And it is there... In the midst of suffering that the oil of his grace appears to us as it drips down from his heavenly throne of grace. Yes, and so we know him or we come to know him more and more as the Christ of all grace. Whom we read in Hebrews sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And growing in this knowledge and all that we suffer in this life. In, as Christians. Is what occurs. Our life is being patterned after him. And in this rich experience, we are drawn into closer communion with our blessed Savior and Lord. And so I ask you again, in closing, do you want to know him? Are you like Paul here who states it is the goal of his existence and a willingness to suffer all things if only he might know Christ? Do you want to be drawn into the closest and most intimate personal knowledge of the person of of the Savior, Jesus Christ? And do you want to be made like him? Despised, hated, persecuted, but on your way to glory. Are you a theologian of the cross? Well, then you will begin to see the value of all that frustrates and perplexes and causes pain in this life. Even and especially in the context of the church and all Christian endeavor. Everything that you do as a believer. Are you surprised to find that even Christian people will disappoint you and they will hurt you and they will fail you. When that's what happened to Christ. All that you suffer for him. Everything you seek to do for him and for his father in heaven. And yet which is met by opposition and frustration and futility. The sufferings of the present time. It is there in the crucible that Christ is known most and best. For for it was there that he manifested his own life and power to save. This is the testimony of the martyrs. The power of God. The knowledge of Christ. Even as they died uh, for him. It's the testimony of the hall of faith in Hebrews. You read that chapter and you realize in every case, especially at the end. That the greatest testimony of their faith is in what they suffered for Christ. What they endured and yet they knew him. And they gained the price. It's the testimony of the Apostle Paul here. That the more I suffer for him in this life, the more I know him. But I ask you, is it your testimony? And is there anything that you won't suffer for him? If only you might know him. Have you learned along with Paul this lesson? And are you able to say with him? What I want more than anything is to know him and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Let us stand together and sing from the Blue Trinity hymnal, hymn 550. Hymn 550. Please stand.